This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class by Mike Davis, out now in a new edition. Prisoners of the American Dream is Mike Davis's brilliant exegesis of a persistent and major analytical problem for Marxist historians and political economists. Why has the world's most industrially advanced nation never spawned a mass party of the working class? This series of essays surveys the history of the American bourgeois democratic revolution, from its Jacksonian beginnings to the rise of the new right and the re-election of Ronald Reagan, concluding with some bracing thoughts on the prospects for progressive politics in the United States. Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class, by Mike Davis, out now in a new edition from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. In my last episode, I spoke to a group of journalists, activists, and academics about how the left should respond to the climate crisis and how that response, for better or for worse, will require a deep transformation in social and economic relations and also in our built environment and how we inhabit it. In other words, eco-socialism is the only solution because we can't achieve real ecological balance without socialism. And true socialism, socialism that delivers human liberation, would be concretely impossible without ecological balance. This episode is an interview that I did a few months back in Providence at Riff Raff Books with Elizabeth Rush, a creative nonfiction writer and the author of Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. Rush's book is a lyrical, mournful, but ultimately rather hopeful account of people dealing with the most tangible effects of global warming right now, the rising seas that threaten the poorest people with dislocation, community destruction, and compounded destitution. I have a hard time reading lengthy accounts of climate change because I find them incredibly depressing. If you have a similar problem, please read Liz's book, Rising. It's an unmatched, beautifully written guide to the current crisis that sugarcoats nothing, but that also highlights how ordinary people can organize to fight for their future. Before we get started, I can only make this podcast happen because you, the listeners, support us at patreon.com slash the dig. $5 a month gets you our newsletter. $10 gets you a copy of either The ABCs of Socialism or Assad Hater's Mistaken Identity. A contribution of $20 or more, and I have a bunch of lefty books to send you. Please, if you haven't already, support the leftist podcast that you listen to at patreon.com slash the dig. Okay, here's Elizabeth Rush, the author of Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. Elizabeth Rush, welcome to The Dig. Thanks, Dan Denver. Um, 
your really extraordinarily beautifully written book is, is an attempt to think through something that's really unthinkable, which is climate change and the seas that are rising as a result. And it's this crisis that's taking place at an incomprehensible scale and for somewhat incomprehensible reasons for a lot of people, I think it's, it's happening in a way that seems tailor-made to elude a, a human minds that are hardwired to think about cause and effect in a very different way. Can you say a little about why it's so hard to think about climate change and how you set out in this book to make it something that can be thought about and thus acted upon? Sure. There's um, a number of reasons, I think, why climate change is really hard to think about and really hard to engage with and really hard to write about. Um, for one, it's really slow moving and incredibly place-based. So your average North American citizen moves once every four years. And at that rate, it's really hard for us to notice the kinds of incremental changes that are the first evidence of changes in the climate. So it's about the late arrival of ice in a lake. It's about the winters that we've had here in Rhode Island really recently, where you have random days of incredible warm spikes. Um, that actually gets sap flowing in the veins of like stone fruit trees that then if the temperature drops really quickly again, it freezes and expands and sort of destroys the vascular network of that tree. Most of us wouldn't have any cause or reason to be able to, we couldn't notice those things. Um, and so part of what Rising does is it's a series of essays and each essay opens with a testimony of someone who's lived in a coastal community for a long period of time and is watching um, the ground beneath their feet literally go underwater. And they talk about, you know, what are the events that led them to recognize that climate change was real and happening in the present moment? And then also, what are the actions that they're taking as a response? And then there's a, a, a separate problem for thinking about climate change, which is people like me and probably a lot of people in this room who certainly accept the scientific consensus that climate change is real and it's caused by human action, but have a really hard time thinking about it because it seems like such a hopelessly, fatalistically apocalyptic mental road to embark down. Yeah, I think that... Um... This book, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein, has a really nice opener that talks about how easy it is to, um, I think in the, I hope I'm going to paraphrase this correctly, but she's sitting in a plane that can't take off because it's so hot that the tarmac has melted. And she understands that the ride that she's about to take is part of the thing that's causing the day to be so hot and that there's a sense in which it's so hard to point to a particular cause. She knows she's part of it, and yet she can't exactly pinpoint where it stops and where it begins and who's responsible. And the easiest thing for most of us to do is to look away at that point, to recognize it and then sort of turn away from that recognition. I think that's also in part because a lot of the stories that we have around climate change at this point tend to be super apocalyptic. I think of like The Day After Tomorrow, that film 
um, is one of the first like big blockbuster cli-fi or climate change science fiction films. In it, there's like a massive tidal wave. And then overnight, New York is like plunged into an ice age. Things happen super quickly and super horrifically. And um, those are stories that I think were used even as recently as like five, 10 years ago to try to wake people into awareness, to scare them into awareness. And I think for a lot of folks right now, we're there, we're scared, and it's time for an alternative kind of storytelling around climate change that also can um, make the possibility of future collective actions using climate change as a reason to come together to demand like greater rights for more than human species, to demand you know better uh, development practices, that we also need those stories as well. And I think, um, and I hope that we'll start to see a shift in the storytelling around climate change, because I think people are tired of the apocalypse. It doesn't leave space for a lot of action. Yeah, I mean, I, I was initially a little like resistant to open your book because of my general resistance to thinking, to, to, to reading such detailed information about climate change, but I'm glad that I did. Um, and uh, there's a passage on that really, I think, well encapsulates uh, the dread that this subject can generate on page 66 that I'd like you to read. All right, so this comes um, in a chapter called The Marsh at the End of the World. Ha, ha, ha. Um, it's a little dread-inducing for sure. And... Um, in it, I've just spent a, a day out um, with geologists taking methane emissions readings from a marsh. And now uh, I've gone out kayaking with this woman and we're kayaking back from an island called the Heron Islands. These days, all it takes is a little unusual warmth to make me feel nauseated, like motion sickness or seasickness. End sickness is its own kind of vertigo, a physical response to living in a world that's moving in unusual ways towards what I imagine is a kind of event horizon. A burble of bile rises in my stomach, and a string of observations I've been hearing in these parts adulterates the joy of our afternoon adventure. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, the bottom-dwelling cod, pollock, and winter flounder are pulling away from the shore. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, the shrimp fishery has been closed for years. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, uh, phytoplankton are disappearing, green crab populations are exploding, and sea squirts are smothering the seafloor. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, the lobster moving into deeper, cooler waters, keeping the lobster men and women away from home for longer. Because the Gulf of Maine is warmer than ever before, everyone and everything that lives here is changing radically. Something that you do throughout the book is, is make these concrete connections between these processes that are seemingly very disparate for, for people. And it got me thinking that the book is not really about, it's about climate change, but more specifically, obviously, it's about sea level rise. And I wonder whether you think that sea level rise is a more concrete 
way to think about climate change than this concept of, of climate change. The, the threat posed by rising sea levels is so much more tangible, it seems, particularly for the people who live on the water that you're writing about in your book. Climate change, by contrast, doesn't really convey that much on, it, on its own. Um, the climate could be changing for better. Uh, you know, like in New England winters, we're very much looking forward to the, the weather changing to spring. And I think for a lot of people, climate and weather are synonymous, even though technically they're not. Did In your reporting around the country, did you see organizing around sea level rise as a more concrete way to create intelligibility and thus hopefully change around the climate crisis? Sure, yeah. I think that there's a way in which climate change, um, when we talk about climate change, we often talk about like, okay, what do two degrees of change look like? What does three degrees warmer of Celsius look like? And for a lot of us, again, that shift of like one degree or two degrees is hard to perceive. And if we do perceive it, it doesn't seem immediately very consequential. But a lot of our coastal communities around the country and often um, lower income coastal communities are sited atop even lower lying, lower lying land, land that's tidal, that has historically flooded anyways. Um, when you have something like a couple inches of sea level rise in those communities, that's actually a change that's very perceptible and it's very easily felt. And it can mean, you know, significant loss. It can mean the loss of uh, a way of life of being able to, to farm. Um, it can mean the loss of property value. It means the loss of tangible things that are very important to us. And so I think sea level rise is really fascinating because it is one of the ways most immediately that the most people around the world are exposed and made vulnerable by changes in the climate. The, the barometer that your book uses to measure sea level rise are is uh, coastal wetlands, and they're a really central piece of your book. More than more than half of the fourteen hundred endangered or threatened species in the United States are wetland dependent. They store a quarter of the a quarter of the carbon in the earth's soil is stored in wetlands even though they're just 5% of the land mass, and they clean far more air than the Amazon. Um, I'd like you to read a passage on, on wetlands and why they have been so long relegated to, to the margins. Yeah, and I should say when I started this book, I was like, ugh, wetlands, boring. <laughs> like, I really wish that I could write a book about mountains. But or old growth trees <laughs> or, or all of whales. these or whales, you know, all of these different ecosystems and species that I've been taught to love um, and have a kind of fascination with and seek out sublime experiences in. Um, so in some ways, like rising also taught me to have a deep regard for these ecosystems that I really hadn't had going into it. So reminds me of some friends of mine who are, are really into mycology, and I, I think they used to dismissively talk about people's obsession with what they called charismatic megafauna. We were just talking about this the other day. <laughs> I saw at Brown Campus right now. There's like a huge iceberg and a and a polar bear on top of it, and I was like, charismatic megafauna. 
There it is. Essentially, it's like we choose these singular species and make them poster children for the environmental movement. And saving a polar bear is really like if you do that, you haven't solved the problem, right? So uh, in some ways, it can like undermine some of the aims of uh, environmental movements, environmental justice movements. So I think we're moving away from it, hopefully. Although, yeah, I saw a polar bear on a building like two days ago. That's your focus on smelly, icky, <laughs> well, <laughs> marshes and... Um, all right, so I know that many of the absolute lowest lying places, the places that flooded most regularly, even when the ocean was more static, have historically offered shelter to those who could literally who literally couldn't afford to live anywhere else. The Hippocratic writings that incorrectly link the stagnancy of the marsh's waters to the production of phlegm echo in the cries of drain the swamp ringing through the streets of Washington today. In the antebellum South, wetlands were thought to corrupt the air and whoever breathed it. William Byrd, an early land surveyor in Virginia, describes what would later become known as the Great Dismal Swamp this way. The exhalations that continuously rise from this vast body of mire and nastiness infect the air for many miles around. It makes nearby inhabitants liable to ogs, pleurisies, and other distempers that kill an abundance of people and make the rest look no better than ghosts. Which is why runaway slaves and displaced Native Americans sought out the swamp and other wetlands as refuges, constructing many of our country's maroon and indigenous communities in the marshes and bogs that line the east and gulf coasts. They threw down roots along the damp fringes of this country, precisely because these places were easy to defend and difficult to attack, the land itself less than coveted. I really like how your book draws out wetlands as an in-between place, as a marginal place that, that, that tells us about everything. Um, and you write that, you quote, know that the erosion of species of land, and if we are not careful, of the very words we use to name the plants and animals that are disappearing, is not a political lever or a fever dream. I see them and remember that those who live on the margins of our society are the most vulnerable, and that the story of species vanishing is repeating itself in nearly every borderland. And for me, this passage really reminded me of immigration politics, which I write about, because I find it really illuminating to read the entirety of the United States and its politics and society through the border. And also, like migration justice, the, the issue of sea level rise and the politics around it is an issue about the right to mobility and the right to exist in place. Can you tell me a little bit about marshes as borderlands and, and what how that helps you think through sea level rise? Yeah, so marshes, tidal marshes are really fascinating um, as a kind of ecosystem type, essentially because every day they get covered and uncovered by the ocean twice at high tide. And that has made them, had made them historically very hard 
for folks to develop in. And sort of for that reason, this land is often fairly undesirable. And in that way, then, these spaces started to act as refuges for marginalized communities around the country. So a place that I spend a lot of time in the book um, that I actually return to twice is the Isle de Jean Charles, which is in the Louisiana Bayou. And it's comprised, its residences are Biloxi, Chittimacha, Choctaw, um, also intermarried with Arcadians. And all of these different groups, all of these different native groups ended up on the far reaches of the Louisiana shore because they were fleeing colonial violence elsewhere. And today, they're not actually federally recognized as a tribe because of the history of intermarriage amongst them. And so that also means now that their land is, is going underwater, they've lost 95% of their land mass in the past 40, 50 years. Um, there's no federal demand for the government to help these people reclaim or have land that belongs to them elsewhere. So the first time I visit them is like in 2012, and 90% and of the inhabitants have left, but the ones that stay are sort of dead set on staying. This land is their identity. It's where they've... Um, made their lives for the past 200 years. They have like a deep connection to this place. And even though like uh, rationally, I think, you know, I know how this story ends, that this land is going under. I can't tell them you can't live here. I can't tell, like they're very distrustful of someone coming in and saying you have to leave. It's like, we've been told to leave everywhere else. We made our lives here. We have a right to this land. Um, but something that's also happened there is some locals have organized and put together a series of proposals to try to get federal funding to help them relocate in. And gosh, yes, it was, we're in 2018. It's like a year and a half ago they won the federal um, disaster resiliency competition and were granted $54 million to start this project to relocate everyone in um, to higher ground. And what's amazing to me is they had to move out of the floodplain that's sort of legally required if the government's gonna purchase their homes and for them to find a space large enough that they could move in together as a group out of the floodplain, they had to move in 50 miles. I mean, Louisiana is really low lying. And, and yet there are some folks who still don't want to go. And I have to respect their right to want to stay there. There, there has to be the ability to do both. There has to be the ability um, to choose to leave a situation that puts you at risk, but also to choose to stay if that's what you feel is really important to your identity and your history. What's probably already become very clear to everyone is that this book pretty seamlessly interweaves a description of the the state and the crisis affecting the the nat the natural world and human with a, a similar discussion of, of of humans placed within that that world and I think your book at least is implicitly rebuking this conventional wisdom that there's a, a, a trade-off between human and ecological well-being because, I mean, that's not only false, but a very dangerous 
falsehood. And uh, you were just talking about the, uh, is it the is it the island of Jean Charles or the Isle Isle de Jean Charles? Um, you do a lot of reporting in the book from from Louisiana, and just to underline how se- severe the crisis is, the there's been 1,900 square miles of coastline lost between 1932 and 2000, which is roughly the size of the state of Delaware. Yeah. Um, and the state's set to lose far, far more. They're set to lose an amount of land that's equal in size to the state of Rhode Island. And and you write that the native people of the island are, are some of the first climate refugees. And by 2050, there will be 200 million estimated such refugees worldwide, including 2 million in Louisiana. Um, and so I, I'd like you to read a passage from page 34 that sort of get gets into what the the human level consequences of this ecological crisis have been on the island. Sure. So this passage um, comes from my first trip to the island. In it, I'm visiting with a man named Chris Brunet, um, who has lived on the island his entire life. And yeah, I'll just jump right in. Eventually, Chris arrives at a photo he wants to show me. In it, his father is tilling the ground in a dirty white button-up shirt, flanked by okra plants. That was all the way back in 1959, Chris says, the year he married my mother. His father's working the land his parents had given him as a wedding gift. Chris runs his finger over the image and hands it to me. It looked so different back then, he says. I've been in the Terrebonne Parish for over a week, and everywhere I go, people keep telling me how it used to be. They even have photographic evidence. It's almost as if the islanders have lived on a different island, a near-perfect copy of the Jean Charles of today, but ruled by a slightly different set of laws. Everything here is just as it was there, with a few notable exceptions. The cypress are all in the same places, but their leaves have vanished. Some of the land where gardens once sat remains, but salt rests in the soil. The plants won't grow and the land lies fallow. And what was once a wetland rich in fowl is now open water. In the photo Chris shows me, his father stands surrounded by pastures. You can even make out a black cow in the upper right-hand corner. In the 60 years since, the meadows where the cattle used to graze have all slipped beneath the surface of the sea. When I was a boy, Dalton says, this is Chris's nephew, Dalton, my papa used to go out into the marshes just south of the house. He would be gone all day and would return with a sack full of dead ducks. He gave them to people. That's how many ducks he had. My pa was a good hunter, but back then there was also enough to hunt, enough to go around. Today, if you were to open up Chris's refrigerator, you wouldn't find ducks, fish, beef, or homegrown vegetables. Instead, you'd probably discover two gallons of industrial milk, three two-liter bottles of no-name soda pop, and a box of Frosted Flakes. Right out there, that's where the marshes were, says Chris, pointing south through his painless window. I look out and see only water. The wind whips up a couple white caps and the sun glitters hard atop each one. 
It used to be that you could walk all the way to Montague without getting your feet wet. Now you can see clear across to the water tower, but you have to take a boat to get there. Since the ducks that his father used to hunt no longer nest nearby, Dalton drives to Homa to purchase Purdue saline-soaked poultry. Both he and Chris still eat local shrimp, but they supplement that with government-subsidized grains and vegetables grown by agricultural giants. Sometimes we have these unplanned reunions at Walmart, Chris says. I mean, you can run into a lot of people from the island, a lot of people who used to live on the island, and even those of us that remain. We're all there buying food, catching up. It's nice to see the people I miss. Chris's statement is so matter-of-fact, so tinged with nostalgia, that I nearly miss its implications. The actions he's describing are not harmless or merely circumstantial. They're a feedback loop, if a relatively slight one. The disappearance of coastal land is causing human beings who once were self-sufficient, whose impact on the planet was slight, to use fossil fuels to produce the food they once were able to grow at home. Every time the islanders drive to Homa, they are, in some small way, accelerating the disappearance of this ecosystem. I want to ask if they know the consequences of their new way of life, but I can't think of a way to formulate this question without sounding rude. Instead, I ask for another slice of cake. Another community that you write about is in Staten Island, which in many ways uh, is about as different from the Gulf Coast <laughs> as inside the United States as one could imagine, but you you find similar sorts of, of stories there. Explain what you what you found on Staten Island and, and how the conservative epicenter, well, like the only, con <laughs> the only conservative, like significant conservative pocket of New York City on the vanguard of, of a just adaptation to rising sea levels. Yeah, so Staten Island is a really interesting story. Um, I was teaching at the College of Staten Island as an adjunct for a couple of years when, and I was teaching when Sandy hit and the college campus closed. And when we opened again, like a number of my students were gone and a lot of them lived in coastal communities. They had been put in like temporary FEMA housing and a lot of that temporary FEMA housing was in New Jersey. And for a lot of these students, um, they had to make a difficult choice. They were, often working part-time and going to school part-time or working full-time and going to school part-time and sort of uh, keeping the their incomes coming in take took precedent. And so I started to pay attention. That to me was like, oh, this is a really specific way in which climate change is threatening and dismantling coastal communities. And I didn't feel like there was a lot of reporting on this. So I started to pay attention to coastal communities in Staten Island after Sandy. And about five months after the storm, I, quite frankly, was shocked to find a grassroots um, campaign started amongst these low-lying, right-leaning, often um, at least initially climate change denying coastal communities where they were going, residents were going door to door 
and gathering signatures of folks who didn't feel safe living in their homes anymore. And the goal was to get near unanimous interest in retreat and then to bring that demand to the state government. They didn't feel that the municipal government would support them um, because of the potential loss of property tax revenue. Bring that demand to the state government and ask that the homes be purchased, demolished, and returned into uh, wetlands. I mean, at first blush, that sounds downright un-American. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I think that the reason I got really fascinated, it's like, why is this group of people asking for this set of things? And the first thing is that uh, the majority of deaths that occurred in New York City during Sandy happened in Staten Island. Over 50% of those deaths took place on top land that was tidal, previously zoned as tidal marsh. Those tended to also be the city's working class communities. You had postal workers, you had um, telephone repairmen and women, you had teachers living there. So there was this incredible trauma. And then if you sort of dig into the history of these communities, it turns out they have been flooding for the past 10, 15 years. They are keenly aware that it's getting worse. I had one guy tell me, you know, they say Sandy was the 500-year storm. Irma, which was the year before, was the 200-year storm. And the year before that, we had what they called the 300-year storm of rain. So in three years, we've had 1,000 years of storms. And they felt that the city was super slow. They were always at the bottom of the municipal repair list. They waited for over a decade to get a berm to like protect their community. It got put in place, Sandy hit, and it ripped the top off the berm. So these are people that were like keenly, profoundly exposed to flooding and didn't feel like they had municipal partners to get uh, an infrastructure solution. Five months pass. No one's giving them funding to get back in their homes. They're living in FEMA trailers. And they're like, you know what? If this is an option for us, if we can get paid a fair price for our home, yes, I want to do that. I want to leave. And another critical aspect that you identified was that was surprisingly that the land be returned to, to nature and not be redeveloped for, say, some like rich people's benefits. And there's a, there's a passage <laughs> okay. on just that. I can do that. So in this passage, um, it's one of my first trips out to this community. And a local organizer named Joe Tyrone is taking me. And I'm really pleased to say that I just got an email from Joe. And he's going to take me out to Oakwood next week. So he's, like, really still invested in this story. Um, anyways. And he's excited about, he's excited that he's in this book. So <laughs> um, this is Joe speaking. And he's talking about the process of getting people interested in this, in what's called managed retreat. One of the biggest concerns was that the land was going to be redeveloped, Joe says. It was a lower middle class neighborhood and everyone was pretty much at the same level of wealth or lack of wealth. If their homes were going to be given to a rich person, if they were going to be knocked down or some developer could build a mansion or a luxury condo, they were not leaving. 
They'd stay there, they'd drown there, they'd rot there, but they were not leaving. Fortunately, a hazard mitigation grant program buyout mandates that the land be returned to open space in perpetuity. And it was this, more than anything else, that convinced holdouts to participate. I can't tell you how many people said, okay, you're sure this is gonna be returned to nature? Then I'll do it, recalls Joe. Residents were willing to give up their waterfront private property, a luxury very few could afford elsewhere in New York City, if, and only if, that property was to become a commons of sorts, the right to use the land held by all. In the most concert, one of the most conservative neighborhoods in New York City, it turns out that what the, the, the critical prerequisite to returning this area to, to nature is precisely that it be returned to nature and that it be that the land be decommodified, um, which is not what I think like most political consultants or operatives on Staten Island would suspect would be most right. appealing to Republican-leaning voters on the island. Yeah, it's fascinating. And there, so I think that there's, on one level, there was a deep desire, especially after the trauma in that community, to think... I will also give up my home if it can act as a buffer in future storms. We know that wetlands are actually really good uh, natural buffers for storm surges and flood events. They can hold a lot of water um, in those rare occasions. And so folks also, if they were going to leave their homes, wanted to feel that they got to be part of something bigger than them, that they were making a decision that would benefit um, multi-benefit generations to come. And I found that really moving. I should also note that there is currently, and this drives me crazy, uh, after Harvey, there's been discussion by FEMA to change the buyout program and actually allow redevelopment in areas that are purchased. And there... There was very little reporting done on this until like two days before the comment section was about to close. I read an article on it and posted it on this really great, uh, the Facebook page of a group called Flood Forum USA that's like a nationwide coalition of flood survivors. They started like six months ago and there's already 30,000 members. And overnight, they generated 96 comments, and it significantly slowed down that process. I'm just saying that it's possible that the buyout program through the hazard mitigation grant program is also being threatened, and so we have to be aware of that and make our opposition yeah. to it known. As it stands, is that more of like a minor pilot program? It's not the, is, is, is it available to all homeowners in in flood zones anywhere in the United States? Yeah, it's, it's mostly been used in riverine areas. Um, and it is available, again, for it to make financial sense and for FEMA to sign off on it, you often have to have near unanimous retreat, interest in retreat in a community parcel area. So that can be like a couple streets. It doesn't have to be a zip code or a census code. But it is a federal program that's been in place for at least... 30 years, because there's been over 3,000 buyouts in Harris County over the past 30 years. This has been used traditionally more for, I guess, like Missouri River kind of flooding and yeah. things like that. 
Absolutely. Um, so, so that's a good program that's <laughs> underutilized and, and hopefully won't be fucked up by the Trump administration. There's an already really twisted program with profoundly messed up incentives, <laughs> which is the, the National Flood Insurance Program. And that incentivizes people to do precisely the opposite right. of what they did in Staten Island. Can you explain the, the program's dysfunction and the ways it could be fixed? Because some of the ways it could be fixed could be arguably even worse than the status quo because they would be so regressive and harmful to poor people. And I guess one last, so by the hazard mitigation grant program and the possibility of buyouts is so important because it's the only federal program we have that can help remove people, get them out of areas of flood risk permanently. It's literally like the only way that we can do that. That's because we have this other thing called the National um, Flood Insurance Program. And I'm going to try to give you an interesting history of the program because it's like super saturated in acronyms. But essentially, insurers never wanted to cover flood insurance because it was a losing proposition for them. Because when you insure against a flood, the problem is that when that flood happens, you have to then pay out a number of claims all at once. And they tend, those claims tend to come in in a flood, like pun intended. Um, and so it would often, offering flood insurance would often cause small-scale insurance companies to go bankrupt. So there wasn't flood insurance for a really long time. What that meant was that if you had a big disaster, the federal government came in and did all the disaster recovery. And in the 60s, we had a string of really expensive disasters in this country. And the federal government was like, okay, we can't continue to fund disaster recovery entirely ourselves. So we're going to offer flood insurance, but we're going to make it mandatory. So anyone who's in a floodplain, if you have a mortgage, a federally backed mortgage, you have to have flood insurance. But because this was new and mandatory, they decided to offer it at highly subsidized rates because they didn't want to price people out of their homes. Because if you offered flood insurance at the cost that it would demand, um, you know, that can be like $15,000 a year, which I know that I couldn't uh, afford to pay an additional $15,000 a year to live in my house. I would have to leave. So they offered it at highly subsidized rates. And... If you make a claim, you are required like by... If your house gets destroyed if, or damaged. If your house gets destroyed or damaged and you, wanna, you want um, to be reimbursed for that damage because you have the flood insurance, you are legally required to rebuild in place. That's the moment that we're in. It's so twisted. <laughs> it's so twisted. And I mean, I sort of get it in that... That law was made in a completely different moment in our history, and I assume that the reason was they wanted to um, make it impossible to speculate on flood-prone properties, purchase a bunch of flood-prone properties for like $5, insure them to $500,000. When they flood, you take the $500,000 and you go elsewhere. That being said... That's not, we live in this moment where properties are flooding again and again and again. And 
there's something called a severe repetitive loss property in the National Flood Insurance Program. That's a property that has flooded upwards of 10 times. They're something like 0.5% uh, of the total holdings of the National Flood Insurance Program, and yet they cost the program 30% of its annual budget. Like it's really expensive. There are homes in Houston that we taxpayers have paid to rebuild 40 times. It's really bonkers. And so it obviously is broken and needs to be fixed. And <laughs> yeah. one way to fix it would be to say, okay, we're removing the subsidies and you have to pay full, full cost for this insurance, which would obviously be incredibly evil to do to people. It would price people out. It would price all of us out of our homes. And they would lose their equity. Yep. So what is a, a just way to solve this dysfunctional system? This is such an ongoing debate. Um, one of the things that I find most compelling is a recommendation that the um, Natural Resource Defense Council, they suggest that we continue to offer subsidized policies, but if you take a subsidized policy in your property um, flood something like more than twice in a decade that by taking that subsidized policy, you also um, express your interest in participating in a buyout. So if your home is doing this repeated flooding thing, um, we're not going to price you out, but we want to make sure that you are potentially interested in relocating, but that's a decision that ultimately the homeowner gets to make. And there would be moments where that could work, where you have continuous parcels that are all interested in being bought out. Um, there's also talk of vouchers, which I think from speaking to homeowners who are lower income and living in the, in the floodplain, um, doesn't sound like a solution that they're interested in. I, I'm not sure that I would be interested in it. I'm Aziz Rana, and you're listening to The Dig, a great place for analysis about where we are, how we got here, and what can be done. It's my favorite podcast, and you can support it at patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is for a Left Populism by Chantel Mouffe. We are currently witnessing in Western Europe a populist moment that signals the crisis of neoliberal hegemony. The central axis of the political conflict will be between right and left-wing populism. By establishing a frontier between the people and the oligarchy, a left populist strategy could bring together the manifold struggles against subordination, oppression, and discrimination. This strategy acknowledges that democratic discourse plays a crucial role in the political imaginary of our societies. And through the construction of a collective will, mobilizing common affects in defense of equality and social justice, it will be possible to combat the xenophobic policies promoted by right-wing populism. In redrawing political frontiers, this populist moment points to a return of the political after years of post-politics. This return may open the way for authoritarian solutions through regimes that weaken liberal democratic institutions, but it could also lead to a reaffirmation and extension of democratic values. 
For a Left Populism by Chantel Mouffe. Out now from Verso Books. One place that you report that the class inequities of how rising sea levels are playing out was was really clear was in Florida, which is a state that could only come to support the massive population that it has through a process of ecological devastation that will very likely one day make it uninhabitable uninhabitable for many, if not most, of those very same people. And I'm glad you focused on Florida because it's such a manifestation of a certain sunbelt iteration of the American dream. My, my father was born in New York and spent his early days in Peter Cooper Village and then moved with his family down to Florida near Fort Lauderdale as you know, part of the early wave of Northeastern migrant, mid-century migrants to Florida. My grandfather opened a hot dog <laughs> place on the beach called Swanky Franks. <laughs> Um, but that Florida dream is like not, is in crisis. How, um, you reported from Miami beach and also nearby working class communities and they're all heading underwater, but the risks they face and how they're, how they're experiencing flooding right now, um, are quite different thanks to the different communities, class positions. Can you tell me a little bit about what you saw there? And what you heard, and also just how much sand Miami Beach pays to truck in every year to stay above water. Yeah, so just to keep that beach a beach, um, they truck in 200,000 tons of sand a year. So when I was in Miami Beach, I reported both from Miami Beach and then from Shorecrest and Hialeah and Sweetwater that are predominantly Latinx communities. Um and I think often Miami Beach is like a poster child of innovative, adaptive strategies to rising sea levels. They are funding those strategies almost entirely with property taxes and also municipal bonds, betting that um, if they go into debt as a municipality, they can work their way out of debt by continuing to attract really high-end luxury development. So in Miami Beach, you get a bunch of um, there are massive street raising projects going on all over the place. There are also tens of dozens of floodwater pumps. So they literally there are intersections that just flood every time there's high tide and there are pumps that pump that water out. Sounds really sustainable over the long run. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like it's and right now we've had like roughly a foot of sea level rise over the past century and the estimates are all over the place for what's to come. But most most scientists will agree that we're looking at a minimum of like three feet by the end of 2100. So it's definitely not sustainable. Um, and I mean, every the time it took me to write this book. All of the projections around that number, how high our sea is going to be in 2100, they roughly doubled. Um, so, yes, right now, the discussion, often the upper limit NOAA uses is about six and a half feet. States like Oregon and California are starting to design to nine feet. 
um, for nine feet of potential sea level rise by 2100. So that difference between Miami Beach, you go five miles north of Miami Beach and there are no street raising projects and there are no flood water pumps. And it also, you know, floods every high tide and residents are just expected to take off their shoes and walk through the water. And those are places that are much lower income, have uh, lower property taxes because of redlining and also less political clout. And the value is already seeping out of their homes. Although I will say also the value is seeping out of homes in Miami Beach. I gave a reading last week in Minneapolis and was approached by three people and they said, you know what, we lived in Miami Beach and we left because we know our house isn't going to be worth um, as much as it is today. In 10 years, it'll be worth less. So that's a story that I heard a lot. Um, and I don't think that it gets, it's not getting reported that we already have these migrations away from these at-risk communities. Another place that you look at the class dynamics of, of sea level rises in the San Francisco Bay area. And on the one hand, there's some really cutting edge adaptation projects going on there in the South Bay wetland, which I don't remember the name of. Is it just called the South uh, the Bay? South Bay Salt Ponds Restoration Project. Thank you. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, the San Francisco Bay Area has a really out of control real estate market, which amongst a lot of other deleterious effects, um, limits how far such projects can go. And you write that Facebook just built this massive campus in an area that is no doubt heading underwater. And I'd like you to read a passage on that, page 242. And I should give you guys sort of a warning. I would say this is like the, the climax of the book. And it's a little bit of a litany. And it's a little bit long. So settle in. <laughs> so I've just left an interview with this guy, Robin Grossinger, who's a historical ecologist and is working on a lot of those wetlands restoration projects. And... You know, I do think that they're forward looking, but then this is sort of the string of thoughts that follow from that meeting. And the meeting takes place in Berkeley. As I walk, I'm thinking about Richard and all the other residents of Alviso, East Palo Alto, Redwood City, and Richmond. I'm thinking that these places have long been relatively affordable because of their flooding problem and how conserving the stage will likely, which is a kind of conservation strategy, and how conserving the stage will likely introduce new stressors, even as it removes others. I'm thinking about the rapaciousness of capital and how the natural refuges and flood resiliency programs growing, going into these neighborhoods are likely to make them safer and prettier, while also pricing out current residents. I'm thinking that these people are sandwiched, between rising tides on one side and Silicon Valley on the other, and that this position is not so different from the one that most tideland species currently occupy. I'm thinking about something Jean Bourgeois, who's a, another wetlands restoration person that I interviewed. I'm thinking about something Jean Bourgeois said as we gazed out over this sea of shimmering buildings. Facebook was the only company from Silicon Valley to contribute to wetlands restoration last year. 
They gave $15,000. I bet they can find that in their couch cushions, I responded. And we laughed, but it wasn't all that funny. Later, I'll discover that the year before Facebook made its meager donation, it paid $400 million for a 56-acre, flood-prone former industrial park adjacent to the Ravenwood salt ponds. This is land that will, according to the Environmental Impact Report, require sea level rise mitigation that will be subject to inundation with the 16 inches of rise the state predicts by mid-century. Land that will, as it's developed, impede the potential inland migration of many of the species who currently live alongside it. Land that will benefit directly from the project's Facebook by all practical measures has yet to support. I'm thinking about how when employees of Amazon and Oracle and Intel and Facebook move in to the working class neighborhoods surrounding their disastrously low-lying tech campuses, they likely have the money to put their homes up on stilts. They have the money to pay for flood insurance. They have the money to protect themselves from sea level rise in a way that longtime residents cannot. And with each dollar that they sink into the sinking land, the more valuable it becomes and the more likely the local government is to fund the innovative large-scale flood resiliency projects necessary to keep the waters out and the property taxes flowing in. I'm thinking about Chris and Edison and how the Isle de Jean Charles wasn't included in the $50 million Morganza to the Gulf Protection Plan. I'm thinking it has as much to do with the perceived value of their land as it does with the cost of including them. Had the island been home to Google and not members of the Biloxi Chittimacha Choctaw tribe, you can bet it would be surrounded by levees today. I'm thinking of all the people in the tan yard, which is in Pensacola, who flood when it rains and who flood when it storms and who can't afford to leave and can't afford to stay either. I'm thinking about how each storm eats away a little more of the everything they've got. I'm thinking about the California Ridgeways Rail and the Salt Marsh Harvest Mouse and the Rosiette Spoonbill and the Caspian Turn and the Greater Egret and the Rufois Hummingbird and the Salt Marsh Sparrow and the Red Knot and the Cypress and the Black Tupelo. And how horizontal levees, which is an innovative wetlands restoration um, design, how horizontal levees will help, but they're no, in no way going to provide sufficient space for all of these species to move in. When I think about all the different species I've encountered along the water's edge over the past five years, I know that we are all in this together. But I don't think that we have collectively come around to thinking in this way just yet. Though I hope, no, pray that we will. Because I know that we, if we do nothing to address the ways in which sea level rise will deepen economic and social inequality while simultaneously displacing and potentially drowning half of the species currently considered endangered, then we don't need a Robert Moses of sea level rise. The increased segregation and exclusion and extinction will happen all on their own. I'm thinking about how Silicon Valley and the tech industry and the innovative ethos of San Francisco are 21st century versions of the same old get-rich-quick scheme, the same old narrative where the march of progress promises 
to transmute buried rocks into rocket fuel, deserts into cornfields, thin air into capital, stolen swamplands into private property. Facebook just constructed a 430,000-foot campus on former tidal wetlands that today rest only 1.6 feet above sea level. The company hired Frank Gehry to design it. It cost them $195,824,452 to build. There are dozens of redwood stumps turned benches on the roof and a teepee-shaped swing. The meeting room has goofy names like seagulls over the bay or bagels and food that ends in hamburger. There's also a floor-to-ceiling mural of the word why. <laughs> Before, <laughs> before building, Facebook dumped uh, 72,500 cubic yards of dirt onto the site to raise it above base flood elevation. And then it lifted the first floor even higher, perching the entire building above the ground on 10-foot-tall concrete stilts. I'm thinking that while Facebook purposefully, painstakingly lifted every single one of its new offices as protection from the first wave of future flooding, it didn't elevate much of the infrastructure the buildings depend upon. It didn't elevate the roadways or the storm pipes or the sewer system. When those flood, taxpayers will cover the expense. And when the salt marsh harvest mice living just east of the parking lot drowned, few at Facebook will know because what they do and who they are is not dependent upon the land where their company rests. If Facebook eventually relocates to higher ground, it will be exactly what it was before. A social networking platform that connects users globally while disconnecting them from the physical setting where their lives take place. I'm thinking about how the ability to move and remain unchanged is a privilege not shared equally by everyone and everything currently residing along the water's edge. One of many things that comes to mind listening to that is that it shows once again that this notion that ecological balance and human liberation are somehow in tension with each other or that there's some sort of trade-off is false because in this case, um, the, the human ability to find affordable places to, to live, which is a crisis in the San Francisco Bay Area, and the adjust adaptation, both to me seem like it will require the same sort of radical change, which is moving towards decommodifying land and property. As long as, as this land is controlled by only by the people who can afford to, to pay these extremely high prices for it, um, both these working class communities that you're writing about and these species that are getting squeezed uh, between rising seas and the land are, are gonna have nowhere to go. Yeah, I think that that's absolutely correct. And that was probably, someone asked me recently, you know, what are, the parallels in the book, like what metaphors do you use? And I think one thing that I came back to again and again and again is that wetland species, historically, when seas rise, can rise with them. Wetlands can migrate up and in. That's like one of the most fundamental 
natural adaptive capacities of these ecosystems. That or they can drown in place. And there are species that are very much rooted in place in wetlands. And as wetlands migrate and start to be put underwater, if you can't move, you uh, you literally drowned. So it seemed to me like one of the things that I learned most fundamentally while writing this book was that that possibility of being able to migrate, that possibility of being able to move up and in is really fundamental to our ideas, thinking through a just resiliency and just recovery, and that in order to do that, you do have to decommodify this land. Um, in fact, most of it, up until 1850, wasn't actually considered land at all. It took something called the Swamp Lands Act, which helped. Uh, the idea was essentially that wetlands were, first they were belonged to native communities and often held as a commons in those native communities amongst different tribes because they are this really productive um, ecosystem. They produce shellfish, the trees and grasses that grow there grow there at really exponential rates. So they were a kind of commons. Then they were considered federal property and their rights and access held by all. And then in 1850, you had something called the Swamp Lands Act, which essentially transferred wetlands to states and allowed states to sell them to the highest bidder. And you had this overnight sort of like fire sale of wetlands. Often you didn't have to put any money down. You could buy them in huge chunks. And the idea was that the state would take the money um, either from the purchase and create the infrastructure to drain the wetlands or that the individual had to do that within like the first five years of their ownership tenure um, in order to maintain those lands. And so you have this commodification of this land that really... That was part of the process of the colonization of this land. Yeah, that it was the process of the colonization of um, the United States, to be sure. I think that we need to sort of unthink a lot of it, a lot of the political and economic moves that were made through that process. Not only do we have to unthink them, but I think sea level rise is actually demanding that we start to um, reinvestigate the possibility of tidal wetlands as, as commons. The last thing I want to ask you about is returning to sort of like how to think about and make and make climate change intelligible, and you write about 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 deep time and how the geological record exposes quote many other worlds which had flourished and vanished over a previously unimaginable length of time. And I think there's something seductively liberating about thinking about how old the Earth is and how many species mass extinction events there have been and that the earth itself will some day uh, that life will collapse as the sun burns out. But obviously that's also potentially extremely nihilistic. <laughs> and you have a passage where you, where you think through the sort of like misanthropic class war revenge fantasy fever dream <laughs> that you're having in Miami beach um, and I'd like you to end by reading that passage on page 84. So this, yeah, this is 
well described by Dan Tenfer, so I'll just start reading. Um, the following Friday, as I drive from my hotel back to the Cox Science Center, I think about what would happen if all the water stored in Antarctica and Greenland's ice sheets were released. These homes would be anchored in place while the Atlantic rose up, up over the driveways, up over the topiaries and stairs, up over the decks and railings, up over the windows and roof gables, until the homes disappeared beneath the flat blue surface of the sea, where clouds would skate, skate and bloom, as though nothing and no one ever existed below. I drive past high-rises currently under construction with breezy names like Aria on the, Be Aria on the Bay, Juan Paraiso, and Solitaire, past two Lamborghinis, two Ferraris, one Rolls-Royce, and one brand-new Bentley with a matte coat of white paint and chrome hubcaps, past the port where six cruise ships pause, past a string of coin-sized islands covered in not-so-coin-sized houses, Star and Fisher, Bell and Hibiscus, San Marco and Rivo Alto. And as I pass, I imagine all of it underwater. Past the new Perez Art Museum, which already sits on 15-foot-high stilts as a safeguard against higher tides and stronger storms and severe flooding. Past the Crescent Heights Inspirational Living Construction Site on the corner of Alton Road and 6th Street the intersection that flooded twice in 2000, four times in 2010, and eight times in 2013. Past the floodwater pumps and the street elevation projects meant to serve the imagined residents of the wave, the name Crescent Heights Inspirational Living gave their new development. Past CVS, Walgreens, H&M, and Forever 21, past Petco Animal Supplies and Wet Willie's Cocktail Lounge, past the South Seas Hotel and Eden Rock, the Shore Club and the Ritz, past a couple with sun hats and beach chairs and a dash hunt. In my mind, there is no tidal wave and no wreckage. Instead, everything is simply, coolly covered by blue. I'm ashamed to say that when I finally reach the Cox Science Building, I sit in my rented Toyota Yaris and feel something close to smug. I imagine this is how the Oracle of Delphi felt, defining, divining the future from a fistful of smoke. Love of money, nothing else will ruin Sparta, she said to Lucregius. Yes, I think. Love of money, nothing else will ruin Miami. But then I remember that water is not discerning. It doesn't know the difference between a spoonbill and a skyscraper, between a millionaire and the person who repairs the millionaire's yacht. The thought stops me in my self-righteous tracks. Elizabeth Rush, thank you so much. Elizabeth Rush is the author of Rising, Dispatches from the New American Shore. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production only develops the techniques and the degree of combination of the social process of production by simultaneously undermining the original sources of all wealth, 
the soil, and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, please do also leave us a glowing review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. What also does that is you telling your friends about the show. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please do also visit patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. <laughs>